just to press the mic on. <laughs> so should I start again? <laughs> okay. And now live from Spirit Rock Meditation Center. So the theme this evening is indeed wisdom. And it's, uh, I was reflecting on it partly from the question that Candace asked about how we act wisely. What orients us to be able to, uh, to act wisely? And that action is really something that we can do uh, moment to moment. We, we don't necessarily need to think about action as just the big events in our lives where we choose this job or speak before some group or um, lead a demonstration or whatever, that in a way we're acting all the time. And it's actually one of the uh, glories of this practice that in a sense we're continually invited to begin again and ask the question, what's wise and compassionate in this moment? So it's a question that we ask uh, moment to moment when we sit. Should I take a nap? Should I um, take a second helping? Should I um, do more loving kindness practice? I'm feeling uncomfortable now. How might I respond wisely to what I'm experiencing right now? And so that quality of wisdom is something that we can continually return to. And it's really the essence of our practice is um, acting wisely moment to moment, not just something reserved for special occasions or big events. And it, it gives us a certain freedom just to continually return to the present moment. And as we explored some, I think in the questions this morning in response to Todd, there's a way in which the asking of the question, what is wise for me to do, Maybe most of the work. Our typical difficulty is that we don't ask that question. Our typical difficulty is that we're caught up in things and we forget, in a sense, to make use of our resources. We forget to make use of our resources of wisdom and compassion, or we are um, swept up in a way that we, feel, that we can feel very reactive. Towards, the, uh, towards what's happening. That we can be very, uh, just very confused in the moment. There are a lot of reasons why we don't use our resources. And so tonight, I'd like to explore some of the, uh, some of the aspects of what wisdom is in a way that I, I hope can uh, give us further resources. And again, remembering that the the, I, I do believe the most important thing is simply to invite the wisdom to be present. And it's the not doing of that which probably is uh, the, or at least a major cause of not acting wisely. And it's really, uh, it's parallel to the fact that mindfulness in itself isn't so hard 
But what's very hard is to remember to be mindful, particularly in daily life. So it's interesting that it's somehow to uh, remember to come back to ourselves, to come back to our wisdom, maybe the quickest way to say what wisdom is. And with that, I could complete the talk. We could have more walking meditation. But for the sake of um, exploration, I will continue my talk. In the Buddhist tradition, wisdom is most centrally explicated through the teaching of what's called the Four Noble Truths. And I want to talk about that teaching and then add some further aspects about wisdom tonight. And many of you know the uh, teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And we could say, or the Four Ennobling Truths, the the Four Truths which... uh, as it were, render us noble, render us um, worthy of respect, in a sense. And the first truth is the truth that there is suffering. The second truth is that there's a cause of suffering. The third truth is that it's uh, possible to transform suffering and, in a sense, end suffering. And the fourth truth is that there's a practical path that leads towards the end of suffering. And this is really, in a sense, at the center of the teachings of the Buddha. It's the subject of the first uh, talk that the Buddha ever gave. After he had, uh, according to the story, after he had been enlightened, He was unsure whether to teach. He said, it's all so simple. No one will believe me. No complicated metaphysical schemes. Just really investigate experience and in a sense let go of where we're grabbing hold or pushing away compulsively. And that is the the essence of it. He said, no one will believe me. I'll just stay with my own personal awakening. And it's said that the Lord of the gods came down, Brahma came down from the heavens and said, please teach. There are some beings with but little dust over their eyes. They will understand. And so the Buddha said, okay. And he began teaching for 45 years. There's also something to me that's uh, very interesting about the the story of the Buddha, which is that the the four truths also come out of a very interesting uh, time right before his his awakening, his going into depth. And that was a time he had followed, we might say, a very uh, strongly ascetic path. He had been with a group of um, yogis who were eating very little and subjecting themselves to the austerities um, so that he became very thin. I've been in uh, Thailand at a monastery where there's a statue 
of the Buddha, I think it was from the 13th, 14th century, where the Buddha is pretty much like a skeleton. He's eaten so little that it's said that you could, he could, someone could put the finger on the uh, back of his, near his uh, skeleton and feel through to the ribs. It was very, he was actually uh, close to death. He was not doing very well. And it's said, the story is, it's very interesting, that he was feeling like he wasn't really making progress with these ascetic practices. And he lay down by the river one day and a young woman who was a milkmaid came by and offered him some porridge. To accept the porridge would have been against the ascetic uh, rules he was following. He, He accepted it. And he, he reflected there and he, he actually felt himself get stronger and he felt the pleasure of the porridge. And he said, this ascetic path of denying pleasure is not right. And he remembered back in his youth when he had experienced pleasure that led to uh, deep insights. And so he said, this asceticism is unbalanced. And he took the porridge and regained his strength And it's very shortly after that, that he awakened. My friend and mentor John Travis traveled to India a few years ago and he, he came to an interpretation, which I like a lot, which was that in a sense, the Buddha was following what we might call a kind of unbalanced hyper-masculine path of extreme asceticism, superhuman will, and so forth. And it was, he was reaching a kind of dead end. And in in taking the porridge, that could be interpreted as accepting, as it were, a gift from the feminine and balancing the masculine and the feminine. And to me, it's very significant that right after that, the awakening occurred, that kind of balancing. That is not a mainstream scholarly interpretation of all this, but I like it. And it may resonate with you because it's something I think that points to a lot of what's happening in our times where there, you know, we might say that the fate of the earth depends on that balancing of the masculine and feminine. That's another topic which we could explore (laughs) another time, but not not so much this evening. But anyway, I, I really find myself drawn to that interpretation. There's something about the Buddha, just like with Jesus, which is quite androgynous. And it's the blending of what we conventionally call masculine, so-called, or feminine, so-called qualities, wisdom and compassion particularly. The four truths are framed in the model, according to the model that was used for medical diagnosis at the time of the Buddha. It was a very simple model which makes a lot of sense nowadays. It was basically asking for four, asking four questions which would help one to resolve a given situation. The first is, what's the problem? The second is, what's the cause of the problem? The third is, what's the solution? And the fourth is, how do we implement the solution? Pretty simple, right? And uh, it's actually a very uh, simple model that we can apply to a lot of issues in our lives. So one aspect of wisdom would be to ask those questions 
of a given situation, to really ask something like that. And so for the Buddha, the problem, as it were, is uh, suffering, that there is tremendous suffering in this life. The, The second truth is that there is a cause of the suffering. And the third truth is that there is a way to uh, transform suffering and come to a deep peace and um, understanding. And the fourth is that there's a practical way to do that, which is in his formulation called the Eightfold Path, or the practical way of living, involving three components of uh, um, skillful action, meditation, and, and being guided by wisdom. So let me go through these uh, somewhat briefly, um, just to orient ourselves, because we've, we've actually uh, explored them somewhat. So the first truth is the truth that there is suffering. And in a way, it's saying there is suffering and it's workable. And if we can remember the teaching we explored on the uh, two arrows, in that teaching, there, there's a kind of distinction between pain and suffering. And pain is itself is not the problem. The fact that we have physical or emotional pain or um, you know, that we are treated unfairly or unjustly at times, it's not in itself the problem that the Buddha is addressing. What he's addressing is the suffering that comes when we shoot the second arrow. We might say it's the reaction, often, to the first arrow. And this is important because the Buddha himself uh, had some physical problems. And when the Buddha talks about overcoming suffering, he's not talking about overcoming physical pain. That isn't possible as a human being. He's not talking about overcoming uh, sadness or having there be no sadness anymore. But what he's saying is that we can really uh, gradually reduce the extent to which we shoot the second arrow, to the extent to which there's reactivity in our being, the extent to which we compulsively grab hold of or push away things. So that's going to be the the analysis of the nature of suffering and the cause of suffering. So I think it's great that Uh, or let me back up, I think that it's been helpful to me to see that it's interesting that the Buddha in his, uh, when he was older, in his 70s or 80, and he died about uh, 80, he died at 80 years old, and when he was in his 70s, and maybe before that, he had a bad back. I love it that that hasn't been censored out of the tradition. (laughs) You know, you can imagine some people saying, Oh my gosh, the Buddha has to be perfect in all ways. Let's censor the bad back out of it, but it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, there, there, you can read in discourses where he basically comes up to his, his assistant Ananda and says, Ananda, my back is really killing me tonight. Can you give the Dharma talk? <laughs> <laughs> and there's both a little bit of humor there, but there's a great deal of humanity. So we're not... So I think that's important that we're not sort of being asked to do something superhuman. That's not possible. And that the Buddha, when he talks about overcoming suffering, presumably he would would sit there and just say, unpleasant, unpleasant, but he wouldn't shoot the second arrow. And that's what constitutes the, uh, the end of suffering. 
you know, and, and, and that's pretty significant. And so, uh, but by, by suffering the first truth, we're referring to that quality of reacting, really in some sense resisting the present moment. And as we've seen, we can do that in two main ways. We can either grab hold of what we take to be pleasant, or we can kind of compulsively push away that which we take to be unpleasant. And either of those, in a sense, constitutes suffering, as distinct from pain. And partly when we open to this truth, we see the extent of suffering in our own lives and in our, in our world. And we study it and we see that there is a lot. You know, there is, um, there is, there is a, a photo that I saw in the San Francisco Chronicle a few years ago which seemed to just uh, capture that sense of the suffering of the human condition. And I don't know if you can see it very much, but the, the title, the caption is L.A. Courthouse Shooting Caught on Film. And it shows a picture of a fairly heavyset man with a gun in his hand about three or four feet away from another man who's crouching in back of a tree. You know, it's extremely poignant, you know, that, at least for me in looking at that, that here it is, and apparently it was one of them is a lawyer and the other one is a very disgruntled uh, client. But he's actually, he's uh, out of his own suffering. He is attempting to kill this person and it's, it's uh, and they're, you know, probably he's not very skilled with the gun because it's very, it's just this very uh, amazing picture. Three feet away and this man crouching to protect his life behind a tree. Just um, quite something. And I think he was, he was not killed actually. He was, um, he, the, the, um, the man did not kill him. And so it was okay in that sense. And so we, we, we look to that, uh, we study that quality, we open to the quality of suffering. And we do so with mindfulness. It's really what the, this large part of the practice is, that here when we sit and when we walk, we, in a sense, open to the fact of suffering, whereas typically when we're operating in a more conditioned way, we run away from suffering. And so we look at it. We, we in a sense, are willing to open to it. Much of our lives is structured by not facing suffering. You know, there's a, let's see where this is. There's a beautiful poem by Rilke, which goes like this. It's, a, it's really about the way that we don't really face suffering in life, so that we spend our lives running away from it. No one lives his or her life. Disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures, we come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all those lives are laid away, like suits of armor or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe all paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. So there's a tremendous compassion there, just seeing the way that so many of us, maybe most of us, don't really live authentically. We are pushed around by our fears, by our conditioning, 
especially because we don't want to face um, suffering. You know, and there's um, perhaps the, the core of um, contemporary psychology is the understanding of what causes neurosis or what causes us to, to um, be driven by the pain of the past. And the basic theory goes something like this. You know, at, typically for most of us, at an early age, there were painful experiences. You know, for some, they may have felt uh, not seen or not understood and got the message that I have to do what the, my parents or teachers want me to do and I can't be myself and they don't see me and I can't be myself. Or others may feel abandoned or others may find that some parts of themselves like their anger or their wildness are scary for their parents. So I get the parents give a very strong message, don't go there. And in a sense, there are painful experiences that we have when we're young. And what happens is that we um, learn how to cover them over. We learn how to not go there because it's too scary in a way. And we develop personalities that are based on finding ways to avoid that pain. You know, so if I'm uh, scared of really being myself because I don't think I'll get love, I can become a nice person who works according to finding the approval of others. And probably many of us have that conditioning. I certainly have had that. And when we feel something that gets close to that territory of pain, our defense mechanisms go up. You know, and we have, if, we're, if we have old issues of abandonment and we're in a relationship where, um, let's say, um, a partner wants to go away for a weekend by himself or herself, that can raise that issue because it's getting close to the pain and it becomes a big thing for us. And so that's, that's probably a basis for a lot of the reason that we actually uh, run away from pain, run away from suffering. And what we're being asked in this practice is actually to face it, to look at it when it's there and to be with it, to be present with it to develop the mindfulness that can be. And we mostly look at the small sufferings in order to get stronger and more prepared to be with the big ones. We could say that our meditation practice is learning to be with small sufferings so we get really familiar with it. And sometimes big ones are there, but a lot of the times it's the small ones. It's being with the knee pain or the shoulder pain. And we learn how that's hard for us too and how we suffer with that. And we study it and we learn how to be present with it. And as we do so, we get more familiar with the cause of suffering, the second truth. So just to say that this significant part of wisdom is the understanding of suffering. A wise person would understand suffering with some depth by having explored the nature of suffering both inside oneself and outside. So that would be part of what constitutes wisdom. Then there's the exploration of the cause of suffering, the so-called the truth of the cause of suffering. And the Buddha expresses it primarily in terms of this compulsive grasping. But I think we can see that it's actually both compulsive grasping and compulsive pushing away. 
It's this reaction or resistance to what's happening in the present moment. And we can see that on the level of our own individual experience. And we can see it uh, very much in interpersonal relationships. And we can see it um, at the social level. We can see how if we think of something, think of the Middle East. The Middle East is complex in many ways, but we can see that as really uh, two sides shooting the second arrow at each other and causing a tremendous amount of suffering. And each of them, in a way, has pain. You know, and it's, I don't want to get into the questions of who has more pain, but clearly both sides have pain. If we think of the, the uh, Israelis and the uh, Palestinians, for example. And there's, there's a way in which each of them feels pain and it becomes a kind of suffering. And out of that suffering, the second arrow is shot. And then that second arrow causes pain on the other side. And they, in a sense, say, I have pain. And they shoot the second arrow in turn back to the first side. And that simple model is really um, the essence of suffering. And it's something that I think, that again, that simple model can make a lot of sense out of our interpersonal suffering. Not very hard to see that. You know, two people both have pain, and what is often lacking is actually a way to connect with the pain and go beyond it. What constitutes a conflict or violence is when people are caught in the pain so much that they can't see their way out of it. You know, there's, there's um, I think it's expressed, this is, this is from a Martin Luther King, uh, because really the whole attitude of nonviolence as expressed by Gandhi or King is basically saying we have to stop shooting the second arrow. We have to find a way to go beyond the system of, by which suffering is continually caused. And so this is what King said. And he points to the way that it becomes like a cycle or a spiral. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So it's really pointing to the way that suffering and the cause of suffering is this, uh, this um, almost this contained cycle of continually shooting the second arrow. And we can do it to ourselves we can do it to another person, and we can ha- that can happen in the whole society at times. And so when we work with suffering, it can be very helpful when we do this in our meditation practice to ask a question, and this is something that actually was one of my first meditation practices. Uh, my first teacher uh, was Joseph Goldstein. I was living in Massachusetts at the time, and he's become quite a well-known and beloved teacher. And he was my teacher for the first five years. And he gave me very simple practice having to do with suffering. He said, 
when they're suffering, notice it. And then look and see if they're suffering, where's the grasping? Where's the attachment? And we could also add, where's the compulsive aversion? And so he, he really invited me when that was, when I was suffering. You know, it might be, again, as, as simple as being with a shoulder pain that, uh, that is pain, but the fact is I'm resisting it. I don't want it to be there, and that's leading to suffering. So if I notice myself doing that, and I ask that question, I can come up with a response. You know, if there's suffering, where's the grasping? I'm grasping to a model of this uh, pain not being here. Or I'm grasping, I'm holding on to a sense, this should not be here. And so then that points to the way in which the third truth becomes an option. The third truth is how can there be a end of suffering? Or how can, in another sense, how can there be peace? So we move, when we move to the third truth, again, we can, we can say that a person who has wisdom studies suffering, one's own and others, and knows with some intimacy the roots of suffering. Knows with some intimacy the roots of one's own suffering and can increasingly see it in the world and see it in others. And can look particularly for those cycles of reactivity whether it's a relationship or one's own self or the society, and looks particularly to to see those cycles. So the third truth is that some kind of peace is possible, that this cycle of continuing to react when something difficult or painful or unjust happens is not the, the essence of the human condition. In that sense, even though the Buddha and and many others, like Gandhi or King, even though they point to suffering as the first thing to pay attention to, this is a deeply optimistic understanding of humanity. It's good to remember that because sometimes people who practice meditation just say, suffering, suffering, that's all there is. And I remember when I uh, I taught uh, college at uh, Kenyon College in Ohio for two years, and I actually worked with a lot of the members of the football team there. Um, I also taught, when I taught at University of Kentucky, I worked with a lot of the football players too. So, um, but, the, 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 uh, but the people, the ones at Kentucky, the football players in Kentucky did not take my Buddhist philosophy class, but the people at Kenyon did. And so they would, they told me they would just bring the, the, the account of suffering. And they used the, the word in the Pali as dukkha, as some of you know. And they would sit there in the locker room and saying, are you experiencing dukkha? I am. And they would talk, <laughs> talk about all these details of their football practices in terms of dukkha. And I think it, I don't know how far they got towards understanding the cause of suffering, but, but they, were, they were definitely talking about dukkha in the locker room. They enjoyed it. And... <laughs> And, and so the, this third truth, though, points to the fact that uh, dukkha or suffering or these cycles of suffering is not the deepest truth about human nature, that actually a profound kind of peace and a profound quality, we might say, of love and wisdom is deeper than the suffering. That doesn't mean everyone can reach it in a given moment, 
But this is really the, the claim of the third truth, the claim of the Buddha. And I think I'll read another, there's another poem by Rilke, which I like a lot, which is actually his poem about Buddha. And it's really, ta- it's really a poem dedicated to this third truth. He says this, center of all centers, core of cores, almond, self-enclosed and growing sweet, all this universe to the further stars and beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space. And there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. In you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. And that's really what is possible to touch in this practice, that deep quality of peace, which actually goes beyond our own individual consciousness. And touching it really is to touch something that is um, far deeper than any of the suffering. Another way to talk about that quality of peace or that third truth is that there is an absence of reactivity or an absence of the compulsive aversion or pushing away. And so in a given moment, if we are working with wisdom, we can ask, let's suppose that I feel that shoulder pain, I notice myself contracting. I can ask, how might I come towards peace in this moment with this relatively small suffering? And that would be to invite myself to let go, let go of where I'm holding and just be in some sense with what's unpleasant or what's painful. And so we really can practice with this third truth in a very ordinary way. Even though there is a a kind of almost a mystical sense of the third truth, there's also a very ordinary sense of it being the peace that's possible when we let go of the roots of any particular suffering in any given moment. And so when we practice with the four truths, when we cultivate wisdom, that's part of what we're looking for. Where am I compulsively pushing away or grabbing hold? And is there a way that I can not do that? That I can just relax, in this case would be into the present moment and be there. And the peace doesn't mean that there's an absence of pain or an absence of the unpleasant. And so there actually can be a quality of peace, even when things are actually uh, somewhat unpleasant. And it's actually quite a discovery of this practice to know that. You know, I can remember um, um, having this experience uh, a number of years ago on a retreat where I had been, it it was a longer retreat, so my mind was fairly quiet. And one particular morning, I hadn't slept well, I was really irritable, and nothing was going right. 
and I felt really content. And I said, this is interesting. <laughs> How is that possible? How is that possible that I can actually feel a quality of peace and contentment when you know, maybe in everyday life, if the same things happened, I'd be really grumpy. I'd be probably caught up a little bit tense. But for whatever reason, I was able to actually notice that uh, you know, uh, things in the conventional sense are not going well, but there's a quality of contentment. And that's something that I've actually heard from a number of you, that you can actually, there's, there can be a quality of peace and contentment even with things not being, so to speak, as you would like. And that's tapping into that third truth, that quality of peace. And so when we talk about uh, wisdom, the wise person would have ways of both inviting that deeper peace to be present and also increasingly have access to it, moment to moment in experience, that it would never be too far away, hopefully, as we practice more, so that it can be something that we call upon in a given moment. Peace, come hither, <laughs> or something like that. Or, or, you know, but it's really something that, we're, that we, are, um, we are feeling a little bit bustled around or a little bit out of balance. And there are ways that we can invite that quality of peace to be present. And as we get stronger in our practice, it can become a resource that we can have access to. As we know it more and more, we can call upon it to be there. The fourth truth is the truth of the uh, practical way to get there. And I'm not going to talk about this in too much detail. This is the so-called Eightfold Path. Uh, And in the traditional formulation of the Buddha, this was divided into three dimensions. Uh, One, as I mentioned, wisdom. Another one, which would be called the domain of ethics and action. And A third would be the area of meditation. And the the first, the quality of wisdom, was made up of two components, uh, working with what was called right intention, or we might say wise intention, working skillfully with the intention might be to remember, to be mindful, to call forth wisdom. And the second quality of wisdom would be, is called right understanding, which has to do really with understanding the four truths, or we might say the first three, especially the, the nature of suffering, its cause, and the possibility of peace, and how to get to peace. What constitutes the, the three aspects of ethics are uh, following the ethical guidelines, such as what we looked at the first night. Really having that be a foundation constitutes part of the path, as does uh, right livelihood, and right speech. I always like that uh, right speech or wise speech is part of the Eightfold Path for the, these people. We might imagine mostly, sometimes I, sometimes I think of the monks and nuns as mostly just uh, silently meditating. I think it's wonderful that the Buddha said, you have to work with right speech. Because actually when you read the old text, they are talking quite a bit. They are not doing something like what we're doing here all day long, all the time. They actually get invited to dinners. (laughs) They give talks. They go to people who are ill. They take care of people. And it's not kind of like nonstop silent retreat all your life. It's actually a big misunderstanding of what the monastic life is like. Uh, And so they actually talk a lot. They do have periods of retreat when they're not talking. But they're mostly talking 
in like in conventional, in contemporary Southeast Asia, they'd be talking maybe nine months of the year. So speech is right there. And we're going to look at that towards the end of the retreat. We'll look at how to bring our practice more fully into our speech. And then the last uh, training area is that of meditation. And that, that involves uh, what's called right effort or wise effort, which is the, really the effort to be present, to be mindful moment after moment, to bring forth one's wisdom. It's not so much I will not sleep at all and stay up late and have this tremendous physical effort. It's, that's really not the quality of effort that's talked about. It's more the quality of effort to be present in a given moment, to remember, to be there, to, uh, no matter where we are, come back to our, our, our intention to be aware and to be wise and compassionate. That's the core of right effort. And then the last two are concentration, developing that ability to go more deeply through the mind becoming stiller. And lastly, the quality of mindfulness. And this this was taken to be the core of what is the path of practice. Some friends of mine think that our contemporary practice needs a few others. And so one friend of mine, instead of the noble eightfold path, he has the noble 14-fold path. And he adds things like uh, right, uh, right relationship and uh, right education, right ecology, and so forth. And so it may be, and I, I believe it's the case, that we may need to supplement that path to really fill out the kinds of trainings that are necessary in our time. And some of what we do in this program that I direct called the path of engagement, where we're looking to see how do you connect inner and outer work, we look, we look into that some. What other areas? You know, so we have a lot of emphasis on communication and speech and uh, how do you work with conflicts and so forth. We could have another one of the noble 14-fold uh, path is right conflict resolution. And so just to give you a sense of that. So I just want to say a few more things about, about wisdom. But the four truths are really the core of what constitutes wisdom in the in the, in the teachings of the Buddha. And so if we were wanting in any given situation to apply wisdom to it, we could go through those four, much like, like I did. We could ask, where is there suffering? What's the cause of the suffering? Is it possible to release the cause of the suffering, to come to peace? And how practically do I do that? What are going to be the tools that I need? You know, do I need to... Uh, work with wisdom? Do I need to work with meditation? Do I need perhaps to uh, get further clarity by talking to a friend or a teacher or bringing it up in my community and so forth? And so that would be a formula for any situation for how do I act wisely to ask that question. And again, the hardest thing is to ask the question. It's not actually to be wise. Being wise isn't a total piece of cake. But it's actually much harder to remember to intend to be wise than actually to be wise, because we actually have a lot of innate wisdom in us. So I want to mention just a few other aspects of wisdom that that are important, and they're related to what we've been talking about. One aspect is to be able to see more clearly the causes and conditions that lead to a situation being what it is. 
It's to really be able to have this understanding of what leads, what are the causes and conditions which lead to suffering and what are the causes and conditions that lead to freedom. So if we were looking, for example, at a, an interpersonal conflict and wanting to see how to respond wisely, we would want to understand some of the roots of the conflict, not just in our interactions, but maybe we'd want to understand some of the deeper aspects of each person's um, psychology. What are the causes and conditions that lead to this? And one of the most interesting uh, reflections that I did over probably about a six-month period, it was actually reflecting on my difficult person that I talked about during the meta period. And I had a, a really what I thought was a blazing insight one day, which is that I, and I found myself with this difficult person starting to go into an old pattern. And our difficult people uh, are good at um, uh, leading us to our old patterns. So I was noticing, you know, basically, the, I, let me see what the pattern was. It was something like, um, like I mentioned, I would make some kind of suggestion or plan or proposal, and it would basically be squashed by this other person. And I would, uh, and I found myself going after that happened, just going into my immediate reaction, which is one of judging and just kind of going into a bit of a, a loop, basically um, quite a few second arrows and getting into kind of a cyclical conflict. And at that moment, I started to realize, first of all, that I had been down that road quite a few times. You know, and I, was, I started to see the patterns which is when we study our suffering, we start to see the patterns more clearly. We start to see, oh, when this happens, when this person does this, I do that. And then when I do that, that person does this, and as it were, we're off to the races. And I start to see the patterns more clearly, and I start to say, look, we're doing that old pattern once again. And for whatever reason, I, I was able that time to say, let me look at myself and see what I bring to the situation and let me look and see, oh, this is what the way this person acts. And of course, we can, in, ideally in communication, work on that together. But in this situation, the communication wasn't happening very well. And so, but for me, it helped tremendously to see the web of causes and conditions. And it actually allowed me to let go of shooting the second arrow and develop uh, much more perspective. And so that understanding of causes and conditions in a given situation, in our own mind, can give us a big perspective. It can give us a certain degree of equanimity, and it also can give us a certain amount of patience. And I think also can give us an understanding, uh, a skillful understanding of maybe where to intervene. A lot of times we just react according to the old patterns, and we don't really understand the situation very well. We're just reacting often in the old way. And so in that situation, it becomes possible to do that. One of the examples which really inspires me is the example of Dr. Um, A.T. Aryaratni, who was actually talking down below on Monday night. I don't know if any of you went there instead of here. I don't think so. I didn't. I didn't go there either, as you know. <laughs> and he is in his 70s, and he should be a, a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize because he founded an organization called Sarvodaya, which is uh, in Sri Lanka about uh, 50 years ago when he was young. He was a school teacher and he, and he wanted to bring Buddhist principles 
to help with the uh, community development and village development and meeting questions of poverty and so forth. And he's probably created the organization which has the most application of the principles of mindfulness and wisdom to real life situations in the world, maybe in the history of the world. He ha his organization has 15,000 chapters throughout Sri Lanka. They've been a major mover in ending the civil war in Sri Lanka, as well as responding to the tsunami. I think he's received certain kinds of awards. And he has this very large sense of causes and conditions. He talks about the civil war and says, we have to look carefully at the causes and conditions. And if we do that, we don't just say immediately, this is what we want. He says, we have a 500 year plan. The roots of the conflict go back 500 years, in part to colonialism and other, other causes, to the way that, the, in, in this case, the, the Tamils and the Sinhalese were set off against each other and, and didn't resolve certain things. If we want to resolve the conflict, we have a 500-year plan. And there's, there's this deep sense of the, of the causes and conditions and how they work out. And so that's really a that understanding can give a lot of space. But it also permits a very decisive action because we know where to intervene. And so that also would be an aspect of wisdom. Now I want to close just by, by, by mentioning that wisdom by itself may not be sufficient. That in a way we need to marry uh, wisdom to both compassion and courage. And that's what I want to close with that discussion because it's possible for us to be thinking that we're wise and actually be somewhat distanced, to actually be use the wisdom in a more intellectual way perhaps or in a way that doesn't really uh, connect so deeply. We can actually use wisdom. I can look at the causes and conditions and be as if on a mountaintop and not really connect with the situation. It's one of the dangers of uh, meditation or of, uh, of anyone who cultivates wisdom. That wisdom can itself be used as a kind of defense mechanism so that we don't really engage. That our wisdom can be somewhat cold and distanced. It's possible. Especially if it's more, if it's more of an intellectual nature. And so what is really called for is to connect uh, wisdom with the heart. That's really the aim of our whole retreat here, is to make that connection, to talk about both clear seeing and opening the heart and bring them increasingly together. I think wisdom quite naturally can lead to compassion. When we're present with suffering, there's a natural opening of the heart that's possible. And so there can be that connection but it's, also, it's really important if we're working in a given situation and, and trying to act wisely to ask the question, is my compassion there? Is my heart there? You know, do I have those connected? There's, an interest, there's a beautiful passage from an, from an Indian uh, wise man named uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. He says this about wisdom and compassion. He actually uses the word love. He says, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. 
between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. We might say wisdom tells me that I'm just the product of causes and conditions. Love tells me I'm connected with others. Between the two, my life flows. And that actually is captured in this traditional sense of the Dharma or of the Buddhist teachings as being a bird that requires two wings. The two wings of the bird of the Dharma are said to be wisdom and compassion. And you can't fly just with one wing. Now, interestingly, in the last 50 or 60 years, in Vietnam, during the time of the conflicts there, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, first with the French and then with the, uh, the US, the Vietnamese Buddhists said, we need more than just wisdom and compassion. And so they added a third aspect. I don't know if it's a three-winged bird, <laughs> but they added a third aspect, and that aspect was courage. They said, we have to have three pillars of our practice, wisdom, compassion, and courage. And that's really the courage to act and the courage to be with difficult situations. I think it was really calling on that courage that brings the wisdom and compassion to action. And I love that combination, that really the bringing of the three together, that's something that really has stayed with me. And it really points to the way that um, there can be really, I think in my own experience, there was a way that I could be wise, I felt, and also have my heart open, but I still could felt I could be knocked around by things. I could have a lot of wisdom, I could have a lot of uh, um, compassion, and yet there was something that wasn't quite there. And I think it was, it was actually developed further through connecting practice more with the body. And I think in some ways we might say that wisdom is about the mind and compassion is about the heart. And courage in a way is about the body. This quality of being able as a being with a body to be there and act wisely. And for myself, it was actually in having my meditation be much more fully grounded in my body and particularly for myself in my belly, much like in the martial arts. That when I was in my belly and in my heart and in my mind, it was hard to knock me around. And when I lost one of those, I was in a little bit of trouble. Do you getting that? It's, so it's very interesting that I think maybe for us to develop, it's really to have our practice get strong in the wisdom that is strong in our minds, our understanding, our mindfulness, strong in the compassion, strong in the heart, strong in being able to have the heart open to be empathic. And then lastly, grounding the meditation in the body and the ability to be there when there are difficulties. In that way, really connecting the mind and the heart and the body, connecting wisdom and compassion and courage. And I think giving a much more mature sense of wisdom when we do that. So I think I'll end right there. Just let us sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.